back to another episode of MJ's Progress Not Perfection. Today's guest is Tim. Tim has a lot of great sobriety. He is somebody who has dove headfirst into 12 steps, headfirst into helping other people and supporting other people, and he is all about his recovery right now. He spent a long time in active addiction. You know, he spent a long time growing up, seeing addiction. So he is definitely somebody who has either been watching it or been part of it for a long time. So to give back for him is a big deal right now that now that he's sober and now that he can help other people the way that he does. So I really hope you enjoy watching this episode or listening as much as I did having the conversation with him. All right. Welcome to the show, Tim. I appreciate, you know, taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Um, what is, what's your clean date or sober date? Uh, February 11th, 2018. Dude, oh wow! So you're a couple months before me. Then I'm April 25th, 2018. You you got it. Right my belly button birthday. That's great, man. Yeah. <laughs> what what does that mean? Belly button birthday. Well, you know, there's you got a sobriety birthday as your clean date, and then your belly button birthday, your government birthday. You know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, because you know it's weird in Pennsylvania. They don't say birthday. They they call it just an anniversary. Um, right. but when I was in California, I mean, you get cakes, you know, you blow out a cake on your birthday and shit. It's a whole mm-hmm. big deal. Like, and I did fly out to California for my one year because I wanted that damn cake. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't care about eating that shit. I mean, I'm fat. I wanted to eat it too, but let's be real. Like I wanted to like <laughs> that satisfaction of like, I did it, you know, here I am. So, and I remember the guy that did the cake commitment for the meeting I wanted to go to specifically. I let him know like a month in advance. I'm like, yeah, bro, I'm coming. I'll be there. I bought my ticket. Get the cake ready, man. <laughs> yeah, that's a big so. deal, man. I um, I listen to a lot of speaker tapes, and and I, they they talk. It's a big deal, and they you know they let you cut your own cake. It's that's, that's a big deal. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a little different around here for you know birthdays or anniversaries. Uh, you might have cake or something, but it's really just um, it's uh some some home groups around here will do like a uh, like a speaker like you find your own speaker you have somebody come speak for you uh in this particular area it's really you know you, you just you pick up a medallion keep it moving yeah. uh try and try and pretend to be humble you know trying yeah i know that feeling um now what are you clean from what was your drugs of choice uh i was a trash can guy i would do anything that was laid before me but my uh you know and it's funny you know you'll hear the term drug of choice used a lot which is a big misnomer. I had no choice. You know, the message I was taught to carry teaches me that I had no choice. Uh, but my substances of no choice, you know, were uh, meth and heroin. Yeah, usually when I say drug of choice, I mean, like, you have all the money in the world. What are you buying? You know what I oh, mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. that's more or less like, you know, when you had a choice. I, I, I think a lot of us were like, you know, whatever, more. You know, I always say I was addicted to more. You know, whatever it was, I wanted more of it. You know, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of us uh, can relate to that, where it's like, it didn't matter what it was, just take me away. You know, that Anything kind of Anything to lessen the pain of being me, man. Yeah, now, when did being you start becoming a problem and you wanted to start escaping? Oh, man, that was, you know, I, I was sick long before I found substances. Um, a little kid, man, I, so just a little, my backstory, uh, my, my parents were, my parents were addicts and alcoholics. They were as sick as could be. Um, and so, you know, I, I was a codependent long before, you know, I I picked up a substance and that's a, another form of recovery I've been getting into recently. I'm a, I'm a newcomer at, uh, codependency recovery. So it's, it's, it's really interesting, but, um, really early on, my dad was an angry, violent guy and my mom was, um, 
a terrified enabling caretaker type, you know. Uh, so pretty early on, um, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable. I've never been comfortable being me. Uh, and it's, you know, even that's a new thing. I'm starting to get comfortable being me. Um, I'm definitely a lot more than I was, but my, my biological father died when I was about a year old. Um, and from an early age, I knew that I was like, I, I was the odd one in the family. Um, now you have my a sister brother, too, because that's how we met. How many, what are you and the sibling, you know what I mean? Cause I, you know, your sister introduced us. So ha like, where, where do you fall with the siblings? Well, that's my, uh, that's my sister-in-law. She is oh, okay. the fiance of my little brother. I was the oldest. Uh, it's interesting, man. I had some Jerry Springer business going on early in my life. Uh, my little brother is half brother, half cousin. We share a mother and our fathers were brothers. That is some Jerry Yeah, I'm from the Carolinas, shit. brother. Yeah, yeah, I'm from the yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, so early on, you know, I felt like the odd one out. I was the, the black sheep early on. And Wait, um, I got to get this math right again. Your, your mom um, left your dad or you and your mom, you and your biological dad. Oh, he passed. Right. Right. Your dad passed. And how did he pass? Uh, he, he was, that happened in Ohio. It was, uh, a, a, a drunk driving accident. Was yeah. he drunk or was somebody else? Uh, his, it's a pretty messed up story. His oh, school okay. resource officer was fucked up and hit him. Yeah. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure if he was a drinker or anything like that, or if that was, but you mean, okay. So I'm just trying to get this all right in my head now. Oh, so right, you yeah. got, okay, your dad passed and then your mom, you know, started dating your dad's brother. Right. And then, right, my dad's brother sort of stepped in and it, it was, the timing was weird, but that's how it ended up. Uh, okay. I, I was, the guy I know is my dad is actually my uncle. Yeah. Okay. At, at least, yeah, that makes a lot more sense to me than, you know, that could have been a lot worse for a Carolina or a Southern thing, <laughs> you know? Right. So, right. Oh, you know, dude, at, yeah, at least, at least you was, that. yeah. So at least like, you know, he was stepping in and trying to do the right thing, you know? So that kind of makes sense. Okay. So now, now I'm caught up. Is that your only brother, your only sibling? Yeah, yeah, just the one little okay. brother, and, uh, you know, he'd... Uh, At least you guys probably look alike, right, because genetics, because they're brother, you know, dad, <laughs> right? We look, we look pretty <laughs> yeah. similar, yeah. Yeah, okay, Yeah, we cool. look pretty similar. And <laughs> okay. he's, he caught the bug, too, man. He's like me. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how in touch with that truth he is, but he's just like me. Yeah, okay. So, anyway, now you're, you're lost. Like, you're just like, I don't know who you are anymore, obviously. How old were you when your dad passed? You said one? I was like one, and I think by the time I and that was never a secret. My that was never a secret. You know, I, I I knew that the whole time, but I really started to feel that and like sort of somewhat understand it. Maybe five or six. Um, and my my dad was an abusive guy. You know, he was an angry. I know today that he was a sick man, and he was doing the absolute best he could. And I'm super grateful. I love the guy, but that wasn't the case then. I didn't always have the clarity that inventory and and step work has given me. Um, and he was an angry guy. You know, I was a terrified kid. I was afraid before I was anything else, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah that makes complete sense. So, I mean, why, why wouldn't you be, you know? So when did you try to start escaping? Was it like before substances where you escaping with something else? Like, you know, they always say like sugar or I was like lying a lot or, you know, like I'm sure you found something when you were digging into your past that. Uh, there was a did. lot of stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, so, do you remember going through school? You remember that kid 
that had his book bag way too high and walked real fast on the way to class and got there before anyone else and didn't say anything. That was yep. me. Okay. Uh, it probably, I think my first escape was books. As soon as I learned to read, that was my deal, man. Cause I, I could open Harry Potter and I'm Harry Potter. I don't have to be Tim anymore. I don't have to be a little scared Timmy. You know, I can be somebody else. So yeah. uh, I escaped reality in books early on. Um, and then I discovered another love of mine, uh, which was stealing real early on. It's a powerful feeling, man. Uh, I can win. I can take what's yours. And that's a victory for me. And uh, especially, uh, you know, I was under the delusion that I was a good liar and a good thief. Everybody knew what was going on, man. Um, but that's, that's a way I found to escape. Um, then, you know, you, you add girls into that and I was terrified of them, but that was a good escape. You know, I could, my, and that, that's where the line comes in. I could be a black belt in karate with a scholarship, you know, and that was, none of that shit was true. How old are you, by the way? I'm just trying to get an idea I of turned, like how, I just turned how 30. Like, okay. So you were born in 90, right? You're 91. So 91. You, were grow, you were growing up in the nineties. So you know, we didn't have the technology that the kids have today where they can, like, call you out on for being a liar a lot easier. So, right. yeah, in the 90s, you know, you could really be anybody you wanted still. And that was my deal, man. And we moved around a lot, which it lent itself to me being able to be who I wanted to be. <clears throat> Every new school, I could be a totally new guy. If the last uh, if the last set of lies didn't work, I could tweak them a little bit, you know? Uh, yeah. And we did move around a lot. I lived in Charlotte and a lot in that area within about an hour there. And then I lived in Myrtle Beach a lot. Okay. Yeah, I just had somebody on from Charlotte yesterday. Actually, yeah. Awesome, so, awesome. Recovery in Charlotte, man. They're real active. Are they? That's cool. Yeah, I um, I was in Durham. Like, that's where I lived for a year. and But I was just, I was drinking hard when I was down there. I uh, was not ready. I just lost my fiance to suicide and I was just like dove in. Like I was already five years, no shit, seven years into my addiction at that point, like a, you know, a daily use of pills. And then, so I couldn't get pills as easy in North Carolina, but I could sure as hell drink, you right. know, and then I could sure as hell find some Coke and anything that I could find I was going to do. So, right. but all right. So now you're going through school, you're stealing, lying, and but when does you know? what is when is the alcohol come in? I'm I'm assuming that's first. Well, so uh, you know, growing up, my dad drank openly, you know, and he was he was a pretty heavy drinker, and he worked hard and he drank hard, you know. He was a uh, as blue collar as they get, and he he did work really hard and he drank really hard when he got home. Uh, so I was a bartender before I was a drinker, and it's funny how some of my codependency started to show it myself. You know, I started to try, try to control his drink, and I would mix drinks a little. Uh, a little less strong or take a little longer to go get another beer. You know, my, my sickness showed itself in that. And my, my parents were potheads. Uh, and that's how it started. Uh, my mom came to me on my 13th, it was going to be my 13th birthday and asked me what I wanted. And maybe 10 ish, they stopped hiding the fact that they were smoking pot. I wasn't allowed to sit there and I wasn't allowed to smoke, but they, I knew what was going on and they stopped lying. Um, so I, I wanted to party with them. And that's what I told my mom. I was like, I want to get high with you guys. And she was like, all right, you know, because that's how she was raised. My grandparents were psychos from the 70s. You know, everybody partied together. And um, yeah. the attitude was if you're going to do it anyway, you might as well do it here when you're safe with me, mm -hmm. which I sort of get. But, you know, uh, 
it's definitely not how I would do with my kid today, knowing better, you know, but they were, they did the best they could, man. So, uh, my 13th birthday, I smoked weed and, um, I had an abnormal reaction to substances the very first time. Um, we were riding around and, uh, I tried to hit the bowl and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't, or we tried to smoke a joint first and I was like pinching it shut with my lips. I didn't know what I was doing and I was getting pissed. Because I didn't even know what the desired effect was, but I knew I wasn't getting it, and I was getting pissed. Um, so they put it in the bowl, and I couldn't figure that out either. And I didn't get high the first time, and I was irate, irate. I went home and went to sleep. And But from that moment on, everything went out the window. Um, I, I was a fairly academically gifted kid. I was in the, the gifted and talented and accelerated classes and stuff. I had big dreams and aspirations. I wanted to build bridges. I wanted to be able to drive across a bridge one day and have my name on the plaque as the engineer that designed it. Um, That's all, and I'm I did real well in school. I, yeah. I, I, I love, I think bridges are cool as shit. Like, and every time I see them, I'm always like, you know, checking them out who like, and seeing who made it and who designed it and shit. It's one of those I weird geek out on that stuff. Man. That's, that's why I love Pittsburgh. Because, like, Pittsburgh has, like, 400 bridges in their city. Oh, wow. I don't know if you know that. It's the most per capita in the world. It has, like, 430 bridges or some shit like that. And, wow, and But it makes sense. Because think about it. Where Water did everywhere. steel come from? No, where did steel come from? Steel was being made and produced out of Pittsburgh back in the day. So they were just okay. building these bridges with all their excess steel they had for on on the cheap because they weren't shipping the steel anywhere. And then and then it's almost like here's a picture of this bridge if you want this bridge. Here's a you know what I mean? So like not all the bridges oh, are you. you know all over giant, you know, some of them are really small, you know, on, on a small scale, but yeah, they have like ridiculous amount. And That's it's because awesome, of man. like back in the steel, yeah, just a little fun fact that means nothing for you. Uh, well, I'm <laughs> Gives me but another to reason you, to go up there. Yeah, yeah, to you, that's pretty cool, probably. Everybody else is like, what the hell are my bridges for? All right. Nope. So, <laughs> so anyway, stuff. yeah, so you're academic, you're doing good, and we didn't work for you. Well, it didn't work the first time. Yeah. Every time moving forward, it had the desired effect, and I actually learned what the effect was. Um, but from that first time, I put a substance in my body. Everything else went out the window, man. Um, I was, I was, I was ready to go. And it, I slowly progressed, you know, I have this progressive disease. I, uh, I slowly progressed. It was just weed for a while. And my, my family were opium partiers. I could, uh, whatever I wanted to do, I could do with my mom and my grandfather who I was around. Um, and it, it went to cocaine and it went to crack and it went to pills. Um, other than weed, the first thing I did was pills and I had an abnormal reaction then too. Uh, my mom had these painkillers and I took one and I felt that euphoria. And I was like, okay, this is what it's about. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, and I didn't know to like fight the nod. So I took a nap and I woke up sober and I was pissed. I was irate. That's an abnormal reaction. Um, I didn't know it then. I didn't have the verbiage and the, the misunderstanding of it that I have today. But it's, it's pretty clear looking back, dude. I was, I was fucked from the very start immediately. Um, and, you know, moving forward, whenever something new came into my path, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite speakers, you know, he talks a lot about that. And he, he talks about, you know, would you like to do this? Well, well, yeah, I got this. Would you like to do this? Well, yeah. Uh, what is what is it? Uh, yes, 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 absolutely. Um, 
and that's how it went. Um, so I started at 13 and my progression was somewhat slow. It was still fun for a number of years until, uh, about 16 things got a little hairy. Um, I ended up moving from Charlotte to Myrtle beach, live with my uncle and I straightened up relatively. I was just smoking weed and, you know, the weekend kegger, I was a high school kid, you know, uh, but then, uh, some stuff happened in high school. Uh, I finally met this girl, this beautiful little ballet dancer that for some reason loved me and was just enamored with me. So um, I had the hot little girlfriend. I had the fellowship that I didn't know that I craved. I had found friends. I was in this pre-engineering program and in, in this satellite high school I was going to. So I had friends. I belonged. All my instincts were being satisfied. I had no idea that's what was happening, but that's what was happening. All my instincts were being satisfied. Um, and I had full rides to go to different schools. So high school ends and my now ex-wife uh, doesn't go. So of course I don't go. Um, I'm in love, you know, why, why live? So um, immediate resentment, immediate self-hatred. And on top of that, all of these instincts that were being satisfied are now gone. My social instincts, my sex instincts, all these things are gone. Um, I have nothing left but the chemical peace of mind. And I jumped in pretty hard. Um, things spiraled so quickly. Um, so, you know, I graduate high school, 18, 19. Within a year, I am out of my mind, man. I start, uh, my daughter's born, uh, you know, she's 11 today. She's great. But, uh, or she'll be 11 in December, but uh, by the time she's born, I'm experiencing rolling blackouts. There's months of my life I have no recollection of. Uh, things got really drinking or from like because oh, like dude. Xanax. Xanax made me blackout. Xanax right. and as Xanax and alcohol, um, especially combined, that that was the cocktail that it was like as soon as you do it, you instantly blackout. You know, right. and, you know, I was into Xanax for a while, you know, benzos and opiates were my thing and uh, my main thing. Like I was getting 120 Xanny, you know, bars and 120, you know, Roxy 30s every month from a shady doctor for a while. <clears throat> Just to give you an idea of like what that was like my choice, you know, that I was like, all right, what, what, this is what I wanted. You know, when the doctor has a script out and you pay them cash to get it, right. they say, all right, what do you want? That's what I said you know, and I was off, you know, I was already off for like three years, but then I was really off, you know, once I was going to a doctor too. So yeah, the Zannies always your substances, man. Yeah. Blacked out like instantly. And I always stole shit when I blacked out on Xanax. I don't know why Xanax yes, was sir. like everybody I've talked to was like, Oh, I stole a lot. Were, were you on Zannies? Yeah. Every single Andy person. Benzos. I'm stealing some shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody listen to that. Every single person, I don't even take them out of the episode because I find it's important that everybody hears from every single person, Xanax makes you steal. <laughs> that particular inhibition is lowered somehow. You know, I'm no pharmacologist, but that, that's how it works. Um, but, you, but like me, you were trying to be your own pharmacologist for a while, right? You were a pharmacist, you were a therapist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and that's, you know, self-medication. That's something I learned from very young age, you know, even before um, – with with how my mother was you know and that's if there's yeah. something wrong there's a pill you can take for it yeah. no matter what your problem is there is a chemical that will fix this problem and that was ingrained in me pretty early and that took that's a, that's a hard habit to kick um yeah 
And it's Sorry. funny you're talking about the. No, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. So uh, it, it's funny you're you know you're talking about the the name your script. America went through a, a pharmaceutical golden age, and uh, that was a fun ri- way to, wave to ride. You know, it had heavy consequences, but man, it was good while it lasted. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember Florida, that. Man, the amount of Aroxys coming out of Florida was fucking wild. I just uh, talked to somebody yesterday. Somebody I did four yesterday, and I'm going for it today. Um, and somebody yesterday, they said they used to drive 22 hours from Ohio to Florida six times a month. Man. Her and her husband six would times col- a month? They would collectively pick up around 1830s and 1515s every single month and 1800 bars on their trips because they would hit a bunch of doctors each time. Yeah, man. God. Yeah, I thought I was I was doing two hours, four times a week each way. So four hours round trip four times a week to pick up my pills in Jersey. And I, that's what I was doing for the last three years of my addiction was doing that drive. I thought that was a lot. You know, when she told me 22, six times a month, I'm like, holy shit. Like, that's a, I used to withdraw on my two hour ride. I can't imagine that withdrawal for 20 hours waiting to pick up. Man. And they would drive all that around doesn't... Florida, all around these Orlando, Miami, and then back up again. Jesus, man. Yeah. Like, okay, that's, the, when I got into volume, it wasn't pharmaceuticals, um, and I, I had kidney stones growing up, so there was my license for opiates. Uh, and then when I started, you know, getting committed and you know having mental health diagnosis and stuff, that was my license for benzos and different stuff. Um, I didn't have to drive; I would just wait on my script and then eat it in the day. You know. Oh yeah, my script was always gone within five days. Like it never lasted. As soon as I got it, and I was, and I, and the problem is, then you're all of a sudden you're out, and then you're like, all right, I need a spot from somebody. Can somebody spot me? You know, I get my script. I'll pay you back. You know, with some juice. You're on you're it. in the hole on day two. Yeah, yeah, dude. Um, it's impossible to get ahead when you owe everybody and you don't have a job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my job was selling pills. You know, I did have I no, but I was functioning though. I was working the entire time, pretty much like oh, off wow. and on. Yeah, I mean, that's why I think I lasted so long, you know, doing Roxy's. I did Roxy's for nine and a half years every single day. And, you know, I I can say I never did heroin because I loved Oxy's so much. You know, right. those blues, I, lo- I wanted them, and that's all I wanted. Like, as my moment of clarity, like when I did it, my aha moment, my I, my moment of arrival, you know, I remember still to this day. And I was like, I need this, and I want this every single day. And like mm-hmm. I came to terms. When did you know you were an addict? Like I had a, I knew I was an addict a month in. A month into my addiction, I'm like, oh, like I need this every day, and that's okay. I want these. I'm gonna continue to work because they make me better. That lie, you know. Man, I <clears throat> I didn't admit to myself that I was an addict or alcoholic for a long time, but I knew that I had an abnormal habit real early. Um, 14 yeah i'm always curious when somebody you know a lot of people most people tell me oh it wasn't until like a month into going to meetings that like i finally admitted it you know so you're not alone in that you know i i according to other people i'm one of the rare ones that kind of came to terms with it early on and just accepted it right you know so that's yeah that's an interesting question man um you know because a lot of times like this type of 
this type of question is more about powerlessness than it is like what I've branded myself or what I've admitted to. Um, so it's an interesting way to approach that question. It's definitely going to, I can inventory that. That's cool, man. Uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, running around the hood with my mom's boyfriend, like selling dope as a 14 year old kid, there was a moment where I was like, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, this is, this is strange. Like, wh why am I holding this gun? Like, I've never shot a gun. Why am I holding this gun? Because I, I wasn't raised in the hood. You know, I was raised in the, raised in the country, man. I, I, was, I was taught wrong from right. Uh, but there's this book I read that it talks about having moral and philosophical convictions galore and not being able to live up to them even when I tried. And that, that was my story. That was my story. Um, yeah, man, I, I knew I was abnormal, but it was a long time before I was able to admit that I, uh, that I was an alcoholic or an addict. Um, I knew I had a problem, though pretty soon yeah yeah because no. now now you're going to these doctors and they're giving you the meds that you want but it sounds like you know obviously they're gone for the day so then what happened once you went through your script how'd that day look well there was a period of time where i would just chase more pharmaceuticals while i'm smoking weed and doing powder um then uh, eventually heroin came in uh and i was never an iv user of anything um purely by grace it wasn't because i was smart it was because i god used my fear as an instrument of grace uh um but i think a part of me i was afraid that if i put that needle in me i would never stop that was and that that thought was real quick i, I sort of had that understanding kind of quick yeah that's what i meant by so like when i like a month into me like doing pills every day for a month straight kind of thing you know, I'm sitting with my buddy and he just got his wisdom teeth out and like he he had perk fives, you know, like nothing. It's like M&M's to me. Yeah. And so he popped one and like before he didn't know I was on pills. You know, you don't tell anybody that you're doing this. You know what I mean? Right. So like and we're like best friends. So like I slam back like three or four thirties before I go up to hang out with them. You know, we're playing video games or whatever. But within 10 minutes, he's knocked out cold. And I'm right. sitting there like, whoa okay um i guess i am addicted to this and then like i had one of those conversations with myself that you don't usually have apparently people don't usually have but i thought it was normal but i had a conversation with myself of like all right what do we do now like obviously this is an issue if like you know this dude just did a five milligram percocet and he's out cold snoring and you have 120 milligrams in you and you're just like good to go and up um ready like, for some right. more yeah. yeah and i was like all right but i love this and i and i really mm -hmm. want this every single day and mm -hmm. i think i'm in control of this my job's going good i still have money and as long as i don't do heroin i'm gonna stay in control but if you do heroin you're gonna lose control of everything and that's when it's gonna get bad and right. that's when that's the conversation i had with myself and i only got i only got close one time and it was only because I was withdrawing bad. And, it, you know, shit happens and it fell Desperate. through. And I got my other things instead, you know, mm -hmm. luckily. Because I know if I would have sniffed that line and waiting for me in the bathroom, I never would have came back to pills again. Right. You know, and it was that kind of thing. And I even texted my dealer, like, hey, man, if you're not here soon, I'm going to do a line of dope that this dude's setting up for me. Like, right. and he probably knew, like, I'm going to lose a customer that because it makes me a lot of money. <laughs> so mm -hmm. he hurried up and got over there and I didn't um, do it. So, yeah, I, I had that conversation and I know a lot of people don't. 
And I'm glad I fucking did looking back. I can't tell you I'd be sitting here if I would have did dope that one time. Because I don't mind needles. I'm filled with tattoos. Needles don't bother me. You know, so it was just, I, I love sniffing pills. I never smoked them. I never did any of that because I loved the act of sniffing. Right. Yeah, I, I got some tattoos, you know, but I, I, I just, I, and I had, got, you know, in the hospital a lot, IVs was never a problem, but it, the, like, self-injecting was never something I did. Um, yeah. I had that same sort of conversation at, like, with myself at, at 14 or 15, now that I think of it, about powder. Uh, okay. I'm doing powder and my, my dad, my, I mean, my, my grandfather and my mother and all their friends are all hanging around smoking crack. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not as bad as them. You know, as long as I don't smoke crack, it's cool. If I just, you know, do my body weight and powder every week. Uh, And it's like 14, 15 year old kid. Um, And I I do remember thinking the same thing about heroin, but that didn't last long. And it's like, there was a time when the pharmaceuticals I was coming in contact with were legitimate. It wasn't like a fentanyl pressed pill in some dealer's basement. You know, it was like good pills. Yeah, and when too. those were still around, it, it was it was cool. I just wanted to do pills. But when it was all fentanyl, it's like, well, well, fuck, dude. I might as well go get this bag of fentanyl. They're calling heroin. It's way cheaper, you know. Um, yeah, desperation, uh, you know, set of circumstances, uh, those moral and philosophical convictions. I know yeah. right from wrong. But if wrong is easier or cheaper, I'm going wrong all day long, dude. Um, yeah, I didn't mind the price. I, I was always going to wheel and deal and find a way to get my pills. And I call it, you know how they always say you get three loves of your life and everything. Like, I call pills the first love, you know, right. that I had. Because, like, I, it was that thing of, like, oh, I want to be with you every day. I, you know, I need you around every day. And I need you in my life. And I had some lady, you know, at one of the meetings and... It was for support, you know, family support and, you know, kind of like an Al-Anon kind of thing. And but more for them to talk to other people in recovery, not talk to other families just to get different perspectives. And she asked me, she was like, I don't understand. I can't understand why my son won't stop getting high. You know, it's been 15 years in his mid 30s. He won't figure it out. And I just don't get it. And I said, "Okay, um, let me figure this out. Have you ever been in a bad relationship with somebody and your family did not like that person? She's like, yeah. I'm like, and you keep saying to them, you don't know what it's like when we're together. We, he's good to me. He's really good. He's good for me. I feel great when I'm with them. He makes me feel ways that nobody's ever made me feel. And they just never understood you. She's like, yeah. I'm like, that's us and our relationship with that drug. You don't understand it you know he needs to get away, but he's like, you don't know what it's like when we're alone, you know? Right. And it's the same kind of feeling. And then she was yeah, like, wow, exactly you know, for the first time in like 15 years, I can actually understand and like, you know, empathize with my son because I do know that feeling. So, right. you know, that's powerful, a, man. Yeah. That's powerful. So and you're, you have your kid now, you had, you had your kid in your twenties with your ex um, yeah, I was like, I thought it was 19, 18, 19. Yeah. And so, uh, how, and, and what are your in and out institutions or your in and out of men- mental institutions? Oh yeah, dude. So I was, I was living in South Carolina. I was, uh, I was committed. I, I don't know if she says something like a dozen times. She's the one I go to for the historically accurate stuff. I have no recollection, but, uh, I was committed enough that the state of South Carolina stripped my parental rights on the basis of insanity. I was deemed legally insane. 
um, you know, they told my family and people that, you know, I'm not going to be able to live alone, I'm not going to be able to have a bank account, car insurance, driver's license. I'm essentially going to be a ward of the state if I keep doing what I'm doing. And that, that would have been the case. It, I that, was well on my way. That was based on drugs, like psychosis yeah. from drugs. Was it? I was given a lot of mental health diagnosis and I want to be real careful how I say this. Um, because this is just my story and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with mental illness. It's a very real thing and it, it deserves to be addressed. Uh, you know, and in the meetings I go to, it's talked about it as an outside issue. Alcoholism and addiction are meant partly mental illnesses. This is not an outside issue. Um, and this is a real thing. So when I, when I say this, I want to be real clear that this is just my story and this, there's no judgment on anyone else. If it's different than my story, this is just my experience. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm given all these mental health diagnosis, you know, bipolar and borderline and explosive personality disorder, all this wild stuff, intermittent rage. All, I was given a lot of diagnosis. Um, and, you know, my my rights are stripped because of that. I'm deemed insane um, in and out of institutions. But today I don't take any medicine. Not that there's anything wrong with taking medicine at all. Take your medicine if your doctor tells you to. But I'm not prescribed any. I'm stable. Um, I'm good to go. Uh, I'm, I'm recovered. Yeah, yeah from there's a, lot, a number of things. Yeah, there's a lot of misdiagnosis in the mental health field, you know. And my first fiance that I briefly mentioned, she was bipolar, schizophrenic, and alcoholic, and they were legitimate, you know, things. But they didn't even know how to treat her, you know. Right. And it was constantly changing meds, constantly. Well, try this, try this. It's all trial and error based. Everyone has different chemicals in their brain, so they react differently with different chemicals you put in your body. You know, that's why somebody can smoke a blunt, hand it to the next person, and have two different effects for two different people. And right. somebody could be having Jack Daniels, and whiskey can make somebody go crazy and somebody go mellow. It's all because of the chemicals in our brain. So, mm -hmm. you know, with mental illness, that is the biggest thing that, like, you can, you can break your arm and put it into a cast and you can see that it's healing, you know, but with your brain, you can't see that. And you see your actions. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it takes time. And then the medicines, they take time to work themselves. Sometimes it's six weeks for some of these medicines to get it, even you a full effect to see if they're going to work or not, bro. And so don't feel like you're doing any kind of disservice to the mental health community by saying that, because if anything, you know, you would be, you know, somebody to look up to that you can find a way to figure your mental health out that it's there's a lot of misdiagnosis out there and i'll and, be the first one to say that and dude bipolar is the most misdiagnosed thing for addicts and alcoholics because you know addiction and alcoholism present as bipolar symptoms uh, anxiety and depression are the biggest symptoms of untreated addiction and alcoholism you know it, yeah. it's so easy that and this book I read, you know, there's a chapter in it that it talks about how, uh, you know, doctors are very smart. They have ultra modern standards, but they're not well equipped to handle the forces of good that lie outside their synthetic knowledge. A doctor is very smart. He can help me a lot. He knows more than I'll ever know about the human body and the workings of the brain. But that doctor's often not qualified to treat me spiritually. And that is the basis of my disease. Um, alcohol and drugs was a symptom of my disease my my alcoholism and my addiction has next to nothing to do with with those symptoms it's next to nothing to do with substances i'm yeah, spiritually I, sick yeah and your solution was drugs and alcohol but your problem wasn't drugs and alcohol right yeah and my solution stopped working <laughs> they, yeah. they they sure do 
Um, now all these trips in and out of the psych wards and everything like that, no rehabs in there. Nobody ever thought like maybe Tim just needs to dry out and rehab and figure and see a counselor in rehab (laughs) or were you not being honest about your drug use? Well, I wasn't being honest, but it was no mystery. Uh, everybody knew what was going on. I I was never as good as hiding my stuff as I thought I was. I thought I was pulling the wool over everybody's eyes, but everybody knew exactly what was going on. Um, and a lot of these places were dual diagnosis. It was alcoholism and addiction with mental illness. And more often than not, I would end up in these places after a suicide attempt. Uh, I tried to saw my hands off a couple times. I overdosed a bunch. Uh, a big one was, uh, I took like 270 benzos one time. It was ugly stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so 270 would kill a horse, but luckily for you, you had a tolerance that could withstand it and keep you alive. Grace. Yeah. I, I'm not even going to attribute that to my tolerance, man. That's God, 100%. It was uh, 90 K2s, 90 footballs, and 90 volumes, brand new scripts. My poor mother-in-law, you know, I don't know what she had to go through to get her medicine back, but my ex-wife called me stupid, and I was like, I'll show you stupid. Check this shit out, you know? like uh, It was an ugly time, but... um you're like me, man. I, 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 my resentments killed me all the time, you know. And every Number time I got, man. yep. Every time I got like mad at somebody for calling me out on my shit, I'm like, I show you, you know. Check and then, yeah, look what I can do now, you know. Right. And you know, it's all just dumb shit that like, just sick. <laughs> just, I'm so glad that I finally got the help that I needed to figure that shit out because now I'm not. Sp- I'm a little bit spiteful. I'm not perfect, but I don't take that out on myself anymore. I have more fun with spite as opposed right. to makes and hurt myself with spite because spite, man, that, that shit was a killer for me, dude. Killer. All right. So you're in out of the, in and out of the psych wards now, um, no rehabs at all. Right. Well, like I was saying, you know, it's, it's, they're like dual diagnosis places. Um, so yeah, there were, there was a rehab aspect to a lot of this stuff and, and, while I'm in and out of these places, that's where I was introduced to 12-step recovery. Uh, these really wonderful, God-conscious, service-oriented people came in to try and share this message of hope with me, and I fucking hated them. Let me go back to my plastic mattress. I don't like you. I sure as hell don't like your God, and I'm good, man. I just um, I need to figure this out. You know, I just need to figure it out, um, and I'll be fine if you would please leave me alone. I was never that nice about it though. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're like, get the fuck out of here. Fuck <laughs> all the way off immediately and forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so you get out, you go ahead. What's, what's no, up yeah, well, that's, that's sort of how I was introduced to this. Um, and after a while, um, I, somewhat learned how to let me plug this thing up. I somewhat learned how to uh, stay out of those institutions. And I'm not that I managed better, but I, I started to learn how to stay out of the authorities eyes where I wasn't getting locked up as much. And I could, I could use and drink like I wanted to and steal and rob and cheat to make that happen. I didn't function. Uh, my job was stealing and, you know, ripping people's copper wire out of their houses and doing whatever. Um, I would get little jobs here and there, but it never lasted. You nod off in front of the boss, man, you're probably going to get fired. Um, and th- that went on for a while. Um, 
and but the seed had been planted in me you know i knew that there was a better way even if i wasn't ready for it yet and uh you know it took it took a hell of a long time but i eventually was ready to to do something different um my life got really dark man um i until i got clean and sober was an absentee deadbeat father i was an awful abusive husband uh you name it i did it uh my my poor ex-wife you know that was a she's got ptsd man i i, I scarred everyone i was around my my addiction and alcoholism touched everybody that i touched and um i'm really grateful to have been given a solution you know i can go make amends and i cannot do these things to people anymore i don't i don't spread carnage where i go today i'm able to spread hope for the most part which is really cool yeah definitely so what what was the final like the final straw the final thing in february 2018 where you're like i surrender so late 2000 mid to late 2017 um, i'm living in charlotte and there's this wonderful little rehab in monroe across from the hospital and uh growing up there was it's called the hilltop restaurant my family went there it was a treat we'd go there and eat salt and pepper catfish with mama and papa every saturday and this little rehab center their meals breakfast uh, lunch and dinner every day was catered by the hilltop and it's this little seven-day detox it was an oasis man wonderful place clean nice little plastic mattress i could squirm around and not sleep on um so i i started i went there the first time and subconsciously maybe i was just looking because if i could get physically better when i got out i could get high like i wanted to uh, and that's what it was the first time i went there and i was getting high on the way home um the second time I went and I was like, oh, I need to do something different. So I went to some aftercare. I went to a place called, I, I went to a place in Charlotte. It's a, an extended rehab for guys. Um, great place, but I wasn't ready. I stayed like two days and I walked a pretty fair distance to go get me something. And it was, it was maybe a year clo closer to a year after that, that I went back the third time. The last straw was, um, man, I didn't get clean and sober because I wanted to find God. I didn't get clean and sober because I wanted to help you. I didn't get clean and sober to carry a message of hope. I simply didn't want to ask for cigarettes. I didn't want to ask for food. I didn't want to sleep on anybody else's shitty motel room floor. I didn't want to wake up with cockroaches on me. My pride and my ego drove me in here. God used my defects to get to me. Uh, and that's what it was. I was tired of you know, tw about to be 27 years old. I was like, man, I'm tired of sleeping on my mom's shitty ho motel room floor and like intentionally knocking rocks off the table so I can crumb when these people leave and get high. Like I think I, like I want to, you know? Uh, so, um, what happened was me and one of my buddies had somehow gotten a, a motel room to ourselves for the night. We're sitting in this, around this little round table that's got chalk marks on it. It looks like it's been through a war with machetes. You know, people have been mm -hmm. cutting crack on this table for 20 years, man. Um, and we're sitting there and we got dope in two couple different kinds of dope sitting in between us. And uh, the pipes sat there loaded all night long while I sat there and I talked to this guy the little bit that I thought I knew about a new way of life. I didn't learn anything in those meetings those nice people brought into those treatment centers, but I sort of learned to parrot some of the stuff they said. The bottom line was I knew there was a better way and I knew a little bit about how to talk about it in a positive fashion. So I talked to this guy about recovery, which I knew nothing about uh, all night long. His jaw was on the floor the whole time. And 
don't get me wrong before we checked out we did all that dope but yeah, you did. it was less than a week later we were both on the way to rehab he's dead he's dead uh but i'm not so, so i uh i came to winston uh went to salem's where i'm at now I, I came here uh after i went to that same detox and then i went to a rehab center a 14-day place uh and something happened to me there so they got the steps and the traditions on the wall and um i'm sitting there and um that's a rule looking. 62 yeah it's a 62 tattoo yeah is that for rule 62 yeah yeah don't take yourself so damn seriously yeah uh, i had i had somebody else i interviewed a few weeks um she has rule 62 on her arm and the person that gave it to her gave me like half of mine too and That's uh, awesome, I, remember, I remember when she got that tattoo, I was there um, in L.A. when she was getting it. So now whenever I see a 62, I, I know what it is. Sorry, I cut you off. It just it no, caught that's my awesome, eye. Man. It caught my I'm eye, and I just had to know it. what that is. That's yeah, cool, yeah. man. I appreciate yeah. you noticing it. That's cool, man. <laughs> I want to get Step 14 some, on me somewhere, too. Um, step 14 mind your fucking business. <laughs> but um, so oh, I go right. to this rehab. um I'm there for, they let me stay a couple of days until I could find a bed. And I went to a, uh, not an Oxford house, but it's a, it's a, like more structured. It's not democratic, democratically run. It's run by a committee. And uh, I stayed there for seven months, but, oh, back to what happened um, in the rehab. I, I was sitting there and I'm looking at the steps on the wall and I had no idea how to do these things. No clue. Uh, but I made the decision in my mind that I was going to do it. And from that moment on, I have not had an obsessive thought about, chemicals of any kind the obsession was removed from me that day that's grace man i did no work for that i just made the decision and god was like all right kid let's let's see what you can do uh, let's see what i can carry you through is a better way to put that uh, so then you were excited about you know doing that from then on i'm sure you were like right, where do i get like how do i talk to somebody about this right oh i was stoked yeah and people were bringing meetings in and I met some really cool people that are still in my network today, you know, some of my heroes and they were, they had the same message of hope that they had. Then they have that same message now. Um, and I get to walk shoulder to shoulder with them and, and try to live this way of life that I've been gifted with. Um, so I, uh, I go to this sober living house for seven months and, uh, I was in a 12 step fellowship. I, I I've switched fellowships since then, but, um, I did what I was told to do, man. I, uh, I found a sponsor, uh, started working some steps. I worked them wildly, incredibly slowly. I, I, in that first year, I got through step four, which is fucking preposterous. But um, I was chairing meetings. I was immediately in service. I had a trusted servant position in my home group. I was doing everything I could to do the deal. I, I even was trying to sponsor people, uh, wanted to. Uh, at the end of that first year, I was nowhere near qualified yet. I, I didn't know that yet, though. Uh, I was sponsoring by month four, don't worry. <laughs> I think, that's that's how know. it's supposed to be. Yes, sir. But, you know, it was only because I, I don't even know why. I, I, I would just, you know, just like you, I was fully in it, but I guess I didn't take my time. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, I was working quickly through it. Right. I knew I knew I was on a clock anyway while I was in California, you know, and I liked my group out there. But I knew I wasn't going to be there forever, and I wanted to be done it by the time I came back here. So I think I worked a little extra quicker because I wanted to be done by the time I came back to Pennsylvania. And so it worked out. I mean, I was I was speaking at meetings at 30 days. 
Yeah, man. But, See, that's how it's supposed to be. But I was asked. I didn't like, hey, you want me to? Like, I would share a lot. And then finally, someone's like, you just want to speak? <laughs> okay. Like, yeah, I'll talk about my my message of hope <laughs> being here for 30 days. But yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Fuck it. That's awesome, man. I, I really feel like that's how it's supposed to be. So uh, the forefathers of recovery, you know, the 12-step movement started in the 30s. And uh, like the first recovered person, dude, he had a spiritual experience in between like seven to nine days and was recovered and was sponsoring people. This guy was sponsoring people before he was out of treatment. Um, it's not supposed to be a, a slow progress, uh, a slow process. You know what I mean? Uh, the, the steps can be worked in an expeditious, ex, expeditious fashion. You can be recovered and out there kicking ass for God and helping people very quickly. The idea that, uh, it takes a long time to do any of this is a fallacy. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, in the beginning, you know, I was in another 12 step fellowship and they, all respect in the world for them, but they do it a little differently than the way I've been taught to do it today. Um, and I worked some steps real slow, but I was doing everything else uh, that I was taught. But where I was, I wasn't, we didn't talk about the spiritual. The only thing spiritual about it was the fact that we said it was a spiritual fellowship. Um, nobody told me to pray. Nobody told me that my dependence must be on God. Um, I was at about nine months in when uh, I got around some guys that were in another fellowship. And this dude was like, you need to be on your knees praying out loud morning and night. Do that. Um, so I started doing that. And that's when things started to change for me. Uh, by no means was early recovery bad. It was awesome. And I was doing all the practical things. I was yeah. involved at the very start, but the spiritual stuff started at nine months for me. Personal responsibility is big. You know, inactive addiction, I had no personal responsibility. That must be the first thing in, in sobriety. My sobriety is my responsibility. Yours is your responsibility. Uh, with a brand new guy, you know, usually how I approach guys is, uh, you know, hey, hey, how are you doing? I'm Tim. Do you have a sponsor? No. Do you want one? Yes. Call me every day. And I require them to call me daily until they're through the steps or for a while. And, you know, they usually do um, even after that. Um, if I don't hear from you in the beginning, I might give you a courtesy call once or twice, you know, maybe, but uh, I'll probably check on you, but I'm, I'm not going to kiss your ass. I'm not here to baby and ninny coddle you, bro. If you don't want to be here, there's somebody who will accept my help. Um, yeah. You know where we're at. I love you. Fuck off till then. Uh, yep. It's the oh. truth, man. It's, it's definitely the truth. Um, and, and so, cause how you're, you're really active, like in your recovery. Yeah. You spend every day doing something else in recovery, whether it's sponsoring somebody, talking to your sponsor, or doing whatever you have to do. I've got commitments all over the place, man, not just in my home group, but in the higher levels of service. I got a handful of sponsees. Uh, I I was just reading Codependent No More. I do a little book study every Sunday morning in my my house. I did that earlier. I got a sponsee coming over to read the last chapter of the book today. Then we're going to get in another book. Uh, I stay active, man. It's it's. I'm here to serve God and his kids. That's what I do. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, now, cause now it's time to give it back, right? Yeah. Now it's, yeah. Now it's time to give back what was so freely given to you. I mean, because, you know, we've seen what it's like out there and we know how hard it is to get out of there. Um, what can I ask about your buddy? Uh, the, the one that I went to treatment with in the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, he he wasn't. Uh, we weren't super close or anything. And it, you know, I'm pretty sure he's dead. I think that's I think that's the last I heard of him. Um, and you know, I've lost a lot of friends, and I'm going to continue to. Um, but he went to rehab with you. Well, we ended up going to different ones. Um, oh, okay. And he took a little longer to go, and he didn't stick with it. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and that's you know the thing is like now the only way I can live with overdoses, you know, because there's so many of them. You know, right. especially the longer you're in the program, the more overdoses you see just based purely on just seeing people go in and out, you know, and then, you know, being close to people while they're in and then when they go out and they die. Um, right. So it's not getting any better out there. Um, but the only way I can live with overdose anymore, just to remind myself, is they live, you know, they died so I could live. You know, right. they, they gave me another lesson and it's that it's still not good out there, you know, and the fentanyl press one scared the shit out of me, bro. Like no quality control in the basement, bro. And they weren't coming around until like at least my area. They weren't really around when I was getting high. They came around really when I got sober. So now even more so I'm afraid to relapse because I don't know which one's going to be which. Right. You know, and and I always scrutinize the pills because they were starting to come around. But I had a pretty consistent dude that I went to that was getting them from pharmacies and that I trusted. I can't say that for a lot of people. I was a middleman for him, so he always had a lot of quantity. So mm-hmm. that's why I was only fortunate. I mean, I got to the point where, I mean, I owed him $1,800 when I went to rehab. And I called him that Monday, and I'm like, yeah, bro, like, I got I got to go to rehab. Like, I'm done with this. And, like, I was close with my dealer to the point where, like, you know, you talk to him every day. Like, right. and we got close and he knew, you know, I don't, I wasn't trying to make him feel bad when I was going to say like, I'm going to fucking kill myself, bro. Like I wasn't trying to make him feel bad. I was just being honest with him. So when I said to him like, yeah, man, like I'm going to go to rehab, I think, is that okay? And he was like, I'll tell you what, you go to rehab and you stay clean. Just don't hit me up again. And you don't right. owe me the money. But if I hear that you came back and you're getting high again, you owe me the money. I want my money. Yeah. 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 And that's, I feel like that's how it should be, man. That's a solid, that's a solid dope dealer right there, man. Yeah. Well, um, luckily he wasn't an addict, you know, and he right. was more of a businessman and I made him a ton of money and all that. And a lot of that $1,800 was juice was right. like, you know, him fronting me and me owing him extra and shit. So I think that's what made him feel a little bit better about it. Maybe he cared. Maybe he did care about me and didn't want to see me get out of this. Cause he knew how like broken I was at the end because, you know, I was ready to go, bro. I was mixing coke into my my thirties, like in the one in the same line. You know, my friend, you know, she was into coke at the time, and she's clean now, luckily. Um, but she's like, "Oh yeah, you're you're not on pills tonight, are you?" I'd be like, "No, no, 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 no." And then she would give me a line, and then she would walk out of the room, and I would drop a pill into it, crush it into the coke line that she left me, and just, you know, before she came back, it would all be mixed in blue and white. You know, she wouldn't even notice, and I was trying to just like i somebody said it perfectly in a meeting early on that always stuck with me and it was i wasn't trying to kill myself i just didn't want to be conscious anymore right right that made sense to me i tried to kill myself a lot but i was always really too chicken shit to make it happen you know uh if i would have been a lot of my suicide attempts were more means of manipulation of the people around me uh i'm sad i want to die give me what i want don't make me work you know buy me some dope but um yeah at the end man at the very end of mine i I was just mostly just meth 
there was a little crack in there. Um, you know, if the the lower class people were around, but uh, it, it was mostly mess for me at the end. You know, I it's funny. I got a buddy that talks about if you stay sober long enough, your teeth to grow back. You got them back. Bro, I just uh, just my teeth. I just got my teeth fixed, which is really cool. I'm still trying to learn how to talk a little bit, but uh, means a it means a lot, dude. I I looked like a meth head for a long time after I got clean because my teeth were all rotten out. Um, it's cool to, it's cool to look decent today, man. I like it. Yeah. And I actually, somebody I'm interviewing tomorrow, I met him day one of rehab and he was younger than me, but it was like his 20th rehab. And, um, you know, he gave me a lot of amazing lessons and I can't wait to talk to him tomorrow. Um, but he finally has his teeth fixed and that was his big thing was getting his teeth from doing dope and, and meth and everything for so long, you know, he started getting high on Coke at eight. Wow. He started doing, he started doing Coke with his mom at eight. So, you know, that makes you feel any better about that 13. He was, you know, he ended up finding her dead with the brain aneurysm. Oh, wow. You know, eventually. Yeah. So like, I'm really looking forward to having him tell a story because he was a pinnacle for me of, you know, what I was looking for, for information and trying to, like, do this the right way. You know, he relapsed a bunch of times after that. Even with a shot of Vivitrol, he was still trying to get high. Um, but he's sober today. Obsession, don't know, no, don't know, no bounds, man. Yeah, he would go to the meetings, but, you know, he was more like of a, at first, he was definitely, I'm, pro, I'm sure I'm putting words in his mouth, but he was definitely a 13th stepper in those meetings and skipping over the first 12. You know, he's cigarettes he and girls in there, man. Yeah, he I'll, wasn't I'll there. i the meeting, sure. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't going to the meeting. He was like, what meeting are we going to? Not because of the message, but because of the girls. <laughs> right, right. So, like, we're going to Santa Monica tonight. He's like, all right, yeah, that's a good one. Let's go to there, you know. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, I'm sure California meetings are right for the picking. They, they, well, you know what, though? They... I love their meetings, man. I, and, you know, yeah, we're joking around about that part of it, but I loved their meetings. Um, the, the big thing for me was they don't do this in PA as a tradition, and we don't have to even get into, but like that, how they, they don't read how it works here. Right. And, and it's a tradition to read that at every meeting out in Southern oh, California. It is it? Okay. And, you know, that's where we got the name, you know, that when I got out of rehab. The first yeah. tattoo, like I had one tattoo when I was in rehab and then I came back with like 17. Now I got like 40. Um, but like my first tattoo I got was progress, not perfection. Mm-hmm. And I got that two days out of rehab. I was walking on the Venice boardwalk and I walked into a place and that was the first thing that popped in my head that I wanted, you know, on the inside of my arms. I could look down on it always right there. And I'm glad right. I put it there because when I was trying to search for a name for this place, I couldn't think of one. And I looked down. I was like, oh, yeah. That's a good one. Progress there, it is. <laughs> there it is. Right there. Fucking my arm. Yeah. Yeah, man. I There's a lot of paradox in 12-step recovery. Um, and I, I love that term. It's a universal truth, but it's also really easy to hide behind. Yeah, yeah it's really easy to hide behind. Uh, and I, I got to be careful that I'm not hiding behind progress, not perfection. It was easy for me to do that in the beginning. Uh, I'll never achieve perfection, but I can shoot for it. Uh, yeah, well, that's um, I've talked about this in other episodes, so I don't need to get into it too much. But like the definition of perfection, like you're not supposed to ever get it. Like, you know, that's and I was told an interesting thing that like back in the day, like American Indians, like when they painted something, they would purposely smudge it at the end because if it was perfect, then it was spiritually broken. 
Ooh. Like, it wasn't like, it shouldn't be, it was like a curse if it was perfect. And it had to have some kind of inconsistency or something wrong with it for them to be okay with putting it out there. So, like, their old art, none of it's ever, like, perfect because it would be bad if it was. Well, it's, I, there's, there's nothing human about perfection. No, it's not. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. Um, I, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me, bro. Um, you know, someone who has as much time as I do, and but, you know, definitely more a different kind of time because, you know, we do it differently. But right. either way, re- recovery for us is life. It doesn't matter how we spend our day or, you know, which kind of meeting we go to. All it matters is we talk to other people in recovery still. We're in it. We're still being supportive. We still look for support. We still need support. We still want to give support. You know, those it's all are all about built. a message of hope, man. Yeah. You know? Yep, that's right. Right there, man. Dochus. That's Gaelic for hope. Always on my oh, okay. arm, bro. That's yeah. awesome. Always on my arm. You know, that's one of the things I wanted to get as a tattoo early on was hope. Because, you know, that's all I had. It's all I still have. You know, now. Because, like, this isn't funded by the state. You know, I'm not some rich kid with a trust fund. You know, this was run on unemployment up until when that ended yesterday. Now, you know, we don't have any funds. Disability soon. My wife has MS, and that's going to start rolling in soon. But we're not, like, trust fund babies that started a charity full time. Like, this is straight up brought on by hope that it gets going and we can just have some money coming in. I, you know, I pray that it does, and I'm sure it will. And until then, we can pay the bills here and pay the bills at home, and that's good enough for me. You know, everything else will Something fall into place. Something I have faith in, man, is if, if you're up there and you're trying to help people, you're trying to do God's work, then God's will is certainly going to be done in that situation, man. I have no, no doubt of that. Um, I agree. You know, and as that message of hope, I, I would lo- really love to say something right quick. Uh, if you're listening to this and you feel hopeless, you're not. Seemingly hopeless is a condition from which I have recovered today. Uh, so if you're listening to this and you, you want so badly to have any level of this peace and serenity that we've talked about today, uh, find a meeting, find a sponsor, work the steps. Everything else works itself out in time. Uh, there is a better way, and it's so easily attainable. It, it, if you don't believe me, give it a shot. It worked for me. I'm only here because God worked on me through the 12 steps. It can, you, you can have the same thing. Yeah, prove me wrong. Please. Try it. Try it. Try yeah. it. Prove me wrong. Tell me it doesn't work when you try it. Give it an honest effort. That's a, you know, but that's awesome. I appreciate you saying that. And I appreciate you coming on. And now you got a book study. And that's awesome. And I'll, I'll hit you up when this is coming out, too. So this way you know when it's going to be posted. You can you can find me on Facebook, too. And then this way you'll see all my posts there and shit like that. Yeah, I'm going to start spreading the word, man. I got people that like recovery podcasts, man. You're going to have some new listeners for sure. Awesome. Awesome, bro. I talk, I'll talk to you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, brother. You have right, a good I'll one. I'll see you. All right, you too. Later.